And our text is just John 6, 35. However, we're going to read this morning from John 6, 22 through 59 to get some of the wider context there. And, and you'll want to keep your Bible open uh, the whole time this morning because we're going to be jumping around chapter 6 a little bit, even as we're kind of narrowing in on verse 35 there. But before we jump in, let's, let's take a moment and let's pray together. Triune God, you are the, the giver and provider of every good gift, but you are infinitely more satisfying than any gift you might give. And so we ask this morning, during our time in your word, that you would give us yourself. Open the eyes of our hearts to behold you. Open our ears to hear you. Soften our hearts to believe you and to come to you. And we pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, this is our first Sunday in a new sermon series. And in this series, we are looking at the, the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We're calling it uh, Ego, I, Me, which should make some more sense to you after this morning, but we're simply going to take six Sundays from now until Easter, as well as Good Friday, to consider these I Am statements. There are seven of them, and they're recorded for us uh, from the, the, the mouth of Jesus in John's gospel here. The Apostle John, of course, seems to like the number seven. It's a very intentional and often used number for him, and you'll, you'll notice that if you read John's gospel as a whole, as we have these, these uh, bookmarks out here at the welcome table that will give you a reading plan through John's gospel for the next month or so. And uh, if you do that, you'll notice that the first half of John's gospel is organized around these seven miraculous signs that Jesus performs. And, and he performs these signs as testimonies to his identity as the Son of God and as our Savior. And he's also got seven I am statements. Um, to, to be more precise, he's actually got two sets of seven I am statements in John's gospel. Both are worth studying. But the seven I am statements that we're looking at on Sundays together are the ones wherein Jesus tells us something essential about who he is and what he's come to do for us as our Savior, which is a a particular aim that the Apostle John seems to have that, that, that maybe differs some from the other gospel writers. So if you've been around for a while, you might remember our, our recent kind of two years in Mark's gospel recently. And, and if you do, you might remember the, the kind of central scene of the whole book was a scene in which the Lord Jesus asks his disciples who do you say that I am? That's, that's in Mark 8, as, as well as in um, Matthew 16 and Luke 9. And, and that's the crucial question in those three Gospels. Who do you say that I am? Of course, that question is, is put to the disciples in those books. But the careful and discerning reader will clearly see that that very question is being put to them as well. It's, it's almost like in that moment... The gospel writers are turning a camera toward you 
and putting that camera in your face and interviewing you, asking you what's really the most important question you could ever be asked, who do you say that Jesus is? And in that question, you're being called to a point of decision about Jesus. You're being called to to confess him as Lord and Christ and Savior. Who do you say that Jesus is? That is a critical question. Your salvation, your eternity depends on how you answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so that's the question put to us in Mark's and Matthew's and Luke's Gospels. But, But John's Gospel differs some. It kind of flips the camera around. And it puts it not on us, but on Jesus. And it asks him that same question, who are you? Who do you say that you are? And in that, as readers, we're not being invited to confess here, at least not immediately, but to simply listen. And to, of course, let what we hear shape and form and guide our confession and belief about Jesus. But first, we're being beckoned to just listen to Jesus, to hear and to hear from him personally about who he says he is. And what do we hear? On the seven I am statements of Jesus, this is what he says. He says, I am the bread of life, John 6. I am the light of the world, John 8 and 9. I am the door of the sheep, John 10. I am the good shepherd, also John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And lastly, I am the true vine, John 15. We're going to take each of these in turn, although not in order. We're beginning this morning with John chapter 6, verse 35, where we find the first I am statement of Jesus. And we're going to start with reading verse 22 and read on into verse 59 here. And so as we do so, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen now with reverence. Let's listen with rejoicing to the word of our God as it comes to us through the pen, the apostle John writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, starting in John 6, 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You can be seated. Well, a little bit about John's gospel. It was written by the apostle John, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. And he wrote it sometime later in the first century. And the end goal of his writing this gospel is, it's not hard to figure out because he tells us precisely why he wrote it in John 20, 31. He says there that his gospel was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, he wrote it so that those who read it would know that Jesus 
is God's eternal divine son, that he's come down to be our Messiah and Savior. And John wants us to know this so that we might believe in him and receive eternal life through him. That's why John wrote his gospel. That's why we see Jesus' seven signs and all of his teachings and prayers recorded for us in this gospel. And that's why they are recorded in the precise way that they are. And the seven I am statements of Jesus should be read in light of that overall purpose. In recording these seven statements here, the apostle wants us to lean in and hear from Jesus what he says about himself, being the son of God and the savior of humanity. And through these statements, John wants us to believe in Christ and to receive eternal life from him. And that's certainly made clear in our first I am statement this morning as we see Jesus as the bread of life here. Now, the sort of big idea that I want to unpack here is that Jesus is the sustenance that supplies us with salvation and satisfaction. Jesus is the, sus the sustenance that supplies salvation and satisfaction. And I want us to unpack that by looking together at Jesus the person, Jesus the provision, and Jesus the promise. First, Jesus the person. Verse 35 begins by telling us that uh, Jesus said to them, I am, I am. And, and, and I want to slow down and, and kind of savor these two particular words here this morning to start our time because they're, they're the words we're going to see in each of the I am statements repeated in this series. And these words, they carry a lot of theological freight. In fact, these two words are a clear and unmistakable claim to Christ's deity. Jesus is claiming here in these two words to be God. Now, obviously, Jesus is a man. We know this. We just read here Jesus speak about his own flesh and blood in John 6, 53 through 56. He, he has flesh and blood because he's a human being. He's a man. But he's also more than just a man. And, and we get hints of this throughout the chapter, don't we? As we see Jesus continually referred to himself as one who is sent or as one who comes down from heaven. You see, Jesus is implying and saying things like that, that he existed prior to his birth and life on earth. He existed before he was born. He existed before he took on flesh and blood. You'll, you'll never hear the Bible talk about Jesus coming into existence. Rather, you'll hear it talk about him being sent and about him coming. But then, of course, that begs the question, what, Jesus is claim, what is Jesus claiming about himself and, and pre, in his pre-existence? What is he saying about himself in that? That becomes crystal clear in John 6.35 here when Jesus says, I am. Now, I'm going to break a rule here. One of my preaching professors said that like Greek and Hebrew in your sermon should be kind of like underwear. It's assumed you have it, but no one wants to see it. But I, I'm going to break that rule here and talk to you about the Greek because it's, it's important as we try to grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Now, the two words translated as I am are, are the two words we named our sermon series after. Uh, ego, I'm me. If, um, actually, David, if, if you could put up the sermon graphic for a minute. Cameron, put those words on the sermon graphic. So, ego, I'm me. So, the, 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 the two words that we see translated as I am, those are uh, Koine Greek words that are translated as uh, I am in English here. Now, actually, typically, if you wanted to say I am, you would just say the second word there, I me, I me. 
the, 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 the word ego means I, and that would just be typically translated as I. And so ego, I, me, would be kind of like saying I, I am, which is not typical. However, Jesus seems to be saying it here in this kind of non-typical way, and John seems to be recording it for us in this way because they're trying to make a point about who Jesus is. And that point becomes clearer if we look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles would have used. It was a work that began in in 3rd century BC, and it was a, a text many people used at that time. And if we look at the Septuagint and its translation of Exodus 3, we see those same words used in that text. Now, Exodus 3 Verses 13 and 14, the Lord had just appeared to Moses in the burning bush. You probably know the story. And he there commissioned Moses to go and redeem and set his people free from slavery in Egypt. And when he commissions Moses to do this, Moses just asks, he asks a pretty practical question, right? When I go, Lord, who should I say sent me? Like, well, what's your name? And to that, the Lord responds by saying, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, that name and title shows us something profound. That that name is God's way of showing us something of his, his eternality, his holiness, his transcendence, his perfection, his infinitude. It's a way of saying, I am the eternally existing, perfectly sufficient and infinite one. I am the only true God. But then fascinatingly, when the Jewish translators sought to translate the name I am into Greek in the third century BC, they translated it as ego I me. I, I am, which is what Jesus says here. And again, it's not typical, which should indicate to us that Jesus is identifying himself with the God revealed to us in Exodus 3. He's claiming to be none other than Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel, the God of all heaven and earth. He's saying, I am the God of Exodus 3, and I have come down to put on human vesture for you. Jesus is saying, I am the I am. Now, it's claims like this, that should prevent us from ever saying things like, you know, Jesus was a really good teacher. He was a, a, a good moral teacher, a helpful philosopher, but he isn't God. We can't say things like, you know, I, I like Jesus, but I would never worship him. And it was C.S. Lewis who, who once made this very argument, saying that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, in one sense, Lewis is exactly right. right? If Jesus claimed to be divine, 
You can't just dismiss him as a great moral teacher. He might be a liar. He might be a lunatic. He might be the Lord of all the universes he claimed to be, but you can't just write him off as merely being a good teacher. It's not an option. Of course, however, Lewis did leave one crucial option out. And that is the the claim that Jesus, he might not be a liar or a lunatic or Lord, but he could be a legend as well. That is to say that, that maybe... Jesus was actually not a real historical man at all, and that these stories were created out of thin air, or or maybe he was. Maybe he was a real man, a well-known teacher in Israel in the first century. That seems to be basically a historical fact. I mean, no one denies that, really. But, you know, maybe after his death, maybe stories passed on that became embellished. Details might have been added. Tales developed about signs and miracles, and eventually what was once historical fact became myth and legend as time passed on and stories passed on from person to person and household to household. And and that's an option, right? And yet even that option becomes untenable to us if we really read the gospels like John here, which I would encourage you to do this month. If we truly give them a fair shake, for, for one, if you read them and you give them a fair shake, you'll see they don't bear the marks of being legend. They read like real history. They include details about times, places, events, people that place them in a real historical context. They share unflattering details about the disciples that they wouldn't have made up if they were indeed legends. They they show real opposition to Jesus and his teaching. But, But furthermore, we should consider the fact that John is writing here as a real eyewitness to these things. John, the author of this gospel, was there as an eyewitness to the life and signs and acts and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus. He's writing as one who is actually there. And you might think, well, so what? He could be lying. But you know, that's extremely unlikely when you consider the fact that John and the other apostles who bore witness for Christ suffered severely for doing so. The other 11 were all killed for their witness concerning Christ. John himself faced torture, arrest, imprisonment, all for the sake of his witness concerning Christ. And yet he still maintained these things to be true. And people don't suffer or die for what they know to be a lie. And so it seems extremely unlikely that the Jesus we see being revealed here is a legend. And indeed, if if Jesus is not a legend or a liar or a lunatic, if he is who he said he is, If he truly is the Lord of all heaven and earth, come down to put on flesh for us. Just just take a moment and think about the the implications of that. Because they are massive. For one, think about the claim that that makes on your life. You know, I think part of what makes some of us averse to recognizing Jesus as Lord is not not because it's intellectually unsound or unconvincing, but because we hate to think of what it would demand of us if true. Tim Keller once said that if there is a God, then you owe him far more than a morally decent life. Right? If there's a God who made you, who designed you, and formed you, and created you, and has given you the gift of life, doesn't it seem absurd to go, well, I guess I'll just try to be pretty good then. 
No, if there's a God, you owe him far more than that. You owe him the entirety of your life. You owe him your highest allegiance. You owe him the entirety of your heart. You owe him your worship and adoration and affection and loyalty. And so if Jesus is God, you owe him nothing less than that. That means you've got to give up your independence and autonomy of determining for yourself what's good and right and true. It means that, as we confessed earlier, you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. He has the right to command you and demand of you and direct you in life. Think about the claim this makes on you. But then second, also think about the comfort this brings you. You know, if Jesus is God, then that means that God has come down to give you himself. That's, that's radical. There's no religion in the universe that claims something so scandalous, so astounding, that God himself has come down and accepted the limits and sufferings of human existence. That God is, himself has come down even more in order to suffer and be tortured and bleed and die. And for what purpose? John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. You think about that. And be comforted by God has come down to rescue you. God loves you with an astounding love. God loves you with a love that, that would send his own son, that the second person of the Trinity would accept the limits and suffering of human existence. God loves you with a love that would go as far as to suffer and die so that you would belong to him forever. Isn't that a surprising love? That is a wooing love. It's a comforting love. It's a love we see in Jesus, the person. But then that brings us also to consider Jesus, the provision. Because Jesus says of himself here, not just I am, but he says, I am the bread of life. Now, at this point, we should be careful because this I am statement, like others, is, is extremely visual and tangible and speaks to a fairly common thing many of us see and experience every day, namely bread. And the danger with that is that we can possibly let our experiences and understandings of bread, what we think about when we think of bread, guide our interpretation of what Jesus means here when he calls himself bread, instead of letting the context of this passage guide our interpretation here. Now, for example, this past week, more than once I read people claim self bread here because bread is for everybody, right? At least, you know, throughout much of human history, everybody ate bread. It was just something most people consumed every day. And just so, you know, some have said, Jesus is saying, I'm for everybody. I'm like bread. Or, you know, for those of us today who are gluten-free, you might look at this and you go, I'm coming to the opposite conclusion. Right? Bread is not for everybody. Bread is only for some people. If some people eat bread, it will kill them. 
Bread is a very divisive thing. And so maybe Jesus is saying not, not that he's come to bring unity, but division, not peace, but a sword, as he says in Matthew 10. That's what Jesus means when he says he's bread here. And maybe you can see, if we let our preconceived thoughts of bread guide our interpretation here, we might come to conclusions like that. And our conclusions might not even be theologically wrong in one sense, but we can still miss the point of the passage, and we don't want to do that. So we need to understand Jesus' point in calling himself bread here, and to do that, we need to look at the context of this saying. And if we look at the context here, we'll see that Jesus had just performed one of John's gospel seven signs earlier in John 6. And the sign he performed there was the multiplication of, of loaves and fish to feed the 5,000. You might know the story. There were 5,000 men, not to mention all the women and children, and they'd come to hear Jesus teach. And when they did so, Jesus was moved with compassion for this crowd. This crowd, they were undoubtedly hungry. They were in need of nourishment. And so he calls his disciples to do something about this. And they find that there's this, this young boy there who has a, a lunch of five loaves and two fish, which is a massive lunch for a little boy, but maybe he came to, to share. And uh, I don't think he expected this to happen. They acquire this boy's lunch, and miraculously, in a way that only God could do, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, and he multiplies them to feed the thousands. And in the end, when the leftovers are gathered up, there was enough to fill 12 baskets full. That's the sign. And it was supposed to show forth something true and profound about Jesus. Now, just, just imagine for a moment, though, if at one of our church picnics this summer, we're, we're all enjoying some, some, some bergs and some dogs coming hot off the grill, but we're running terribly low. We don't have near enough to feed everyone. And, and just imagine if, if Pastor Adam came up to the grill where those bergs and dogs were cooking, and just imagine for a moment that he, he just comes up and kind of lays his hands over the grill, and somehow these Bergs and dogs start multiplying. Something miraculous happens. You can imagine that our next church picnic is probably going to be pretty crowded. In fact, there's probably going to be quite a few people that start following Pastor Adam around and following him to work and, and seeing what he's doing later that evening and, and trying to see what he'll do next, maybe trying to get a free lunch off of him. Well, that's exactly what happens with Jesus here. The crowds start following him around. They start demanding he do more signs and give them more bread. And they do so not because they're actually interested in Jesus, the person, but because they're interested in the demonstrations of his power and in getting a free lunch. In other words, they want Christ to blow their minds and fill their bellies, but they don't want him in their hearts. And this is what Jesus confronts them about in verses 26 and 27. He tells them, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Now at this point, Jesus is telling that instead of seeking after bread, they should be seeking after him. He's saying that bread you just ate was a sign. It wasn't meant to point to itself. It was meant to point to me. The miraculous sign was like, a, like the, the picture of a meal on a menu at a restaurant. But Jesus is saying, I'm the actual meal. 
right? And so they're being fixated on this sign while Jesus is right in front of them. It's like being fixated with the, the picture of a meal on a menu at a restaurant, even while the meal itself arrives, which is absurd. And so Jesus says, get off your fixation with this bread and come to me. This crowd still isn't getting it, or, or, or maybe they do, they just don't care. Maybe they still just want the meal, and they aren't concerned with what he's telling them, with salvation or eternal life. And so they say to Jesus, well, you want us to come to you? You've got to do some sort of sign to convince us here. You know, well, we got an idea. Moses, you know what he did? Moses miraculously gave our ancestors bread or manna in the wilderness back in Exodus and Numbers. What? I don't know, maybe you could do something like that. What are you going to give us? And Jesus says to them, you know, Moses didn't give you bread. My father did. God did. And he says, but even that was just a sign. Even that was, was just a, a picture of a meal on a menu pointing you to the real meal itself. Even that was just a sign pointing you toward what is standing right in front of you right now which is the bread that gives life. Now, hopefully you're starting to see the connection here. Bread, in a sense, gives life, right? Food gives life. It gives temporary life. Food gives you energy and vitality and nourishment to live another day. It's what it did for these crowds when Jesus fed them in John 6. It's what it did when the Lord provided manna in the wilderness so that the Israelites didn't suffer and die from hunger. If, if you don't have food you die. So food, bread gives life. And Jesus is saying, that's a picture of who I am and what I came to do. I came to give life and not just temporal life. I came to give eternal, everlasting life. And you can see that from what he goes on to say in verses 49 to 51 there. He tells the crowds, hey, while your ancestors ate the bread in the wilderness back in Exodus and Numbers, you know they still died. They ate the bread, and, and that bread, yeah, in a sense, it gave them life for another day. It gave them temporal life as consuming calories will do, but they all eventually still died. But the bread that God has provided in Christ Jesus gives something superior than temporary nourishment and energy and life. The bread that God has provided in Christ Jesus gives life eternal he says in verse 40 that he is the kind of bread that if you come to him and receive of him, you will have eternal life. That is, you know, you'll eventually die, right? But when he returns on that glorious day, he says you will be raised up to life everlasting. When Jesus comes again, he will give to all who come to him what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. You see, Jesus is the sustenance that supplies that salvation. Jesus is the sustenance that supplies everlasting life, eternal life, resurrection life. Jesus is the type of bread that if you come to him and receive of him, you will live forever with him in eternal glory, in a new heaven, in a new earth, with a new resurrection body like his own resurrection body that can't be degraded or die. If you come to him, your sins will be paid for on his cross. 
on his death. And since he rose again to defeat death three days later, he will share his eternal resurrection life with you. That is what is meant by Jesus calling himself the bread of life here. That is the provision that Jesus gives, which brings us lastly to Jesus, the promise. Our verse ends with this promise from Jesus that whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Astoundingly, Jesus promises that not only will we receive eternal life if we come to him, not only will we receive salvation if we come to him, but we will receive eternal satisfaction as well. This whole passage is replete with calls to come to and and believe in Jesus. Jesus says in verses 28 and 29 that this is the work of God, that we believe on Christ Jesus. In verse 36, he says, don't just look at me, but believe in me. In verses 52 to 59, he speaks of it using this metaphor of eating and drinking. He says, don't just witness me in my signs, but eat me and drink me, which is another way of saying believe in me. And here in verse 35, he, he, he says to come to him and believe in him, which is a, a call to, to truly and personally trust in him and to entrust yourself to him. You realize here, the crowd saw Jesus. They knew he existed. They knew he was capable of astounding things. They called him a prophet earlier in John 6. They called him a king. They wanted to make him king earlier in John 6. They followed him around and actually inconvenienced themselves to follow him around. But he's saying, you haven't actually come to me. You haven't actually believed in me, which is interesting, isn't it? You know, it's entirely possible for us today to believe in and value some true things about Jesus. To even follow him in a way. To want some things from him. And yet all the while not truly come to him and not truly believe in him, not in the way he's calling us to here anyway. It makes me think of what the reformers used to say when they talked about what true faith in Jesus consists of. They would say that true faith in Jesus consists of three elements. First, true faith consists of knowledge. True faith consists of of knowing the truth about Jesus. You've got to know that he is true God and true man. That he lived the perfect life and died a sinner's death and rose on the third day and that he grants eternal life to all who come to him. You need to know that. But then secondly, more than just knowledge, you you need to agree with those truths as well. You don't just need to know those truth claims. You need to be convinced and convicted that those claims are actually true, that Jesus actually is the God-man, that he did truly live the perfect life and die the sinner's death and rise on the third day, that he does actually offer eternal life to us in himself. But you know, that's still not enough. Even if you know the truth and agree with the truth concerning Jesus, if you stop there, you are still as lost as the person who doesn't know and doesn't agree. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, says as much in James 2.19 when he says, even even the demons believe 
but shudder. You know, demons have knowledge of the truth concerning Jesus. Demons know and agree that those claims about Jesus are true, but it doesn't save them. And the frightening thing here is that it would be entirely possible for some of us to know the truth concerning Jesus this morning and even agree with the truth concerning Jesus this morning and to even be living a morally decent life. And yet all the while not be any more saved than demons. You know, you can very well have a meal before you. You can intellectually assent to the fact that what is in front of you is food. You can believe it exists, that it can give you nourishment. But if you don't eat, you will not receive its benefits. And so you see a third element is necessary. You need knowledge of of the truth concerning Jesus. You need to agree with the truth concerning Jesus. And you need to personally trust in the Lord Jesus, which is what Jesus is calling us to here. You need to eat. You need to trust him and to entrust yourself to him. And so I ask you, do you truly trust in Jesus this morning? Beyond merely knowing the truth about him, beyond merely agreeing with the truth about him, do you trust him? Have you eaten? Have you come to him in the way that he is calling you to here? Friend, if you have, if you do, if you will, this satisfaction he's talking about here is yours. You will be satisfied by his infinite and eternal sufficiency. And for all of eternity, you will know the joy of abundant life in Jesus. But if you don't, you'll always be hungry. You'll always be thirsty. Always lacking, always searching. Like the crowds Jesus is speaking to here, we, we, we so often seek and search after so many different things to fill our hunger and, and thirst, to fill the hunger of our hearts, the thirst of our souls. You know, they sought after bread and food and temporal provision. We seek satisfaction in relationships and money, possessions. Houses, cars, clothes, we seek it in work, in success, in power, we seek it in family, in sex, seek it in food too. We even seek it in ourselves, having good self-esteem, emotional pleasure. Sometimes we even come to Jesus like this crowd because we think that if we come to him, he might be the means through which we might get what we actually want. And yet all those are broken cisterns. They are poisoned wells that if you draw from them and drink from them, they will kill you. What we're being called to here is to come to Jesus for his own sake. And to draw upon his eternal sufficiency as God to satisfy the longing of our souls. And if we do, we will be satisfied. I feel like I quote Augustine every other week, you've made us for yourself, O Lord. 
and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Only Jesus can satisfy because he is the one by and for whom we have been made. And so I ask you, are you seeking and finding satisfaction in Jesus this morning? Maybe you need to come to him for the very first time to acknowledge the claim he has had on your life and know the comfort of having him in your life for the very first time, for the very first time coming to feed upon the feast that is Jesus and to drink of the all-satisfying well that is Jesus. Maybe you need to come to him for the very first time. Maybe there are those of us this morning who who are kind of like the Israelites back in Numbers who had already been rescued from slavery and redeemed by Yahweh. And yet while traveling through the wilderness and meeting with challenges and trials, being tempted and giving in to temptation to find your satisfaction and longing in other things, you know, they, they, they complained and longed for the, the meals they enjoyed back in Egypt. Maybe you're looking to your former slaveries right now. Maybe you're foolishly longing for them, or maybe you're even giving in to temptation and feasting upon the things of this world to satisfy you. Maybe you're filling your stomach with the delicacies of this world so that you're not really all that hungry for Christ this morning. Well, he's calling you this morning, saying, I'm what you truly hunger for. He's saying, come to me. Believe in me. Find in me your all in all. I alone can satisfy you. And I will satisfy you forever. 